All right. Well, it's good y'all could come tonight. As one person said, live tonight, one night only. So you, um, but on uh, starting Thursday night, we'll be in Jude. And I think everybody will, as we get into Jude, this is going to be a tremendous study. I just wish I was doing it in a little more consistent manner because there are some tremendous, tremendous important doctrines in Jude that uh, we have to pay attention to. Jude is dealing with a culture that has infiltrated the church, whoever that was that he was, uh, to whom he was writing, that uh, where the, uh, the enemy was within the gates. And the same thing is true for us today. The enemy is within the gates. And I'm not talking about the gates of the United States. I'm talking about within the gates of the so-called evangelical uh, fundamentalist church. And it is amazing and astounding how many people uh, will put up with just about anything other than bad doctrine. (laughs) I mean, they'll put up with just about anything other than good doctrine. They don't want good doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled, and they want... um, want a an orator they want entertainment there's a lot of things that they that they look for uh, but solid bible teaching and having to think is not one of them and unfortunately this is the characteristic of the culture as a whole so we're we'll get into some uh, important things as we go through go through jude so i'll be leaving tomorrow my plane goes out about uh, 4 30 tomorrow let me get this hooked up. And so I appreciate your prayers. At this stage, my back has not betrayed me, so I, I'm hoping that things will go well. And when I get off the plane in uh, Kiev, I'll still be upright and not rolling but walking, if you know what I mean. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together as a body of believers this evening to study your word, to fellowship around your word, to be encouraged and challenged by your word. Father, as a body of believers, there are many responsibilities that we have. First and foremost, it's to study your word and to grow and mature in our own spiritual life. But beyond that, and almost as important, is the application of the word both in our lives as well as within the life of the church and toward one another in the church and the importance of that 
uh, that uh, facet of our life toward one another and the importance of uh, being gracious and generous and ministering in terms of uh, Christian service, in terms of our spiritual gifts toward one another within the body of Christ is that is a testimony not only within the body of Christ but also before the human race and before the angels. Now, Father, as we study your word this this evening, we pray you would help us to uh, understand what's going on in the passage we're studying and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each of us the application that's here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we spent, I don't know how long, I think it was 11 or 12 uh, classes dealing with the an aspect of building a foundation or a framework for understanding uh, what the Bible says about economics. The Bible isn't, as I said in the study, isn't an economics textbook. And so when we have passages like the one before us in Ephesians 4, I mean in Acts 4.32, the writer Luke is not going to get derailed onto different aspects of the financial intricacies of what was taking place. So we have to flesh that out a little bit from the scriptures and compare scripture with scripture. But as I pointed out in the last few weeks of this study, we have definitely parameters, certain boundaries that are established within the scripture. And they're all built on one important foundation, and that is the the foundation of personal responsibility. That first divine institution that we are all responsible before God in terms of living our life as he would have us to live it in terms of serving him. This was one of the primary missions of Adam uh, in the garden was to uh, guard and to serve or work uh, the garden. And so this aspect of Christian service, unfortunately, has been distorted by many within uh, so-called fundamentalist or evangelical circles as a means of spirituality when uh, it is a result of spirituality. It's a result of spiritual growth, not the means of spiritual growth. It's part of our responsibility as believers. We don't uh, worship God to grow We worship God as a result of learning about God, learning who he is and what he has done for us. Worship isn't a means of of spiritual growth. Giving isn't a means of spiritual growth. It is a result of spiritual growth. Christian service serving in many different ways within a local church, whether it's uh, teaching in prep school, whether it's singing in the choir, whether it's serving as an usher, whether it's a deacon, whether it's some sort of uh, behind-the-scenes ministry, praying for others, visiting people in the church, in the uh, hospital, people who are sick, people who are homebound. All of these things are important facets of the ministry of a local church and should be the normal outgrowth of people's spiritual spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. What we have, unfortunately, in the way churches have developed historically in the United States and in many, and we, because of in mission, our missions programs, we export our problems as well as our, our good points, is that we, we get people into church and we want them to do certain things as part of their spiritual growth rather than as a result of their spiritual growth. part of their spirit, It should be part of their spiritual life and be self-motivated. It's not the responsibility in one sense for the uh, deacons or leaders of a church 
to assign everybody a job or a role and to hyper-organize the church in terms of numerous cell groups. That's the model that we see today in the church growth movement. In fact, I was taught in seminary that no pastor, no individual can really have good control over more than or really know more than a limited number of people. And so churches really need to be broken down into these subsets. And for the last maybe not quite 200 years in church history, evangelical church history, we've sort of done that in the Sunday school program. But that wasn't that. Did, nothing like that happened in the early church. And in fact, when the Sunday school program was started in the United States back in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, it was outside of the church. It was really started as a way of evangelism in the neighborhoods where there were many young young kids in, in neighborhoods that were, you know, just out on the streets. And so they would go out and try to recruit them to come to a Sunday afternoon school where they would be taught the Bible and be given the gospel, a lot like what Good News Clubs do with five-day clubs and things, and uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, rather, does with uh, five-day clubs and things like that. And this is um, was a tool of evangel- evangelism and then and ministering to kids. And it wasn't until later on in the 19th century and early 20th century that they sort of moved the Sunday school out of the separate afternoon time and joined it to what was going on in the morning. And then they became one, and then it, it, it went in a different direction. But but this idea that <clears throat> that this was just, this was initiated originally by people who wanted, motivated to evangelize street urchins, kids on the street, homeless, that kind of a thing. And now it's become institutionalized uh, within, within uh, different churches or congregations. And uh, it, it, often it's taught that you have to get involved serving in order to grow, which is the reverse of what goes on, or what should go on. Now, I remember years ago in uh, watching a congregation that was kind of wild and woolly, and there were a lot of young people there, and there were a lot of congregations like this across the country. Some of you have heard me talk about this a little bit, but there was, uh, I think, in some sense, a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit in this country among uh, segments of the baby boom population in the late 1960s, and it has come to be called the Jesus Movement. And there were a lot of hippies that got turned on to Jesus, but there were a lot that got saved in that period that went on to serious Bible study, good Bible study, good spiritual growth, uh, things of that nature that took place. And as they matured spiritually, you really saw a lot of people in that movement change. Those who didn't still acted a lot like the world, but those who did mature biblically, you would see them change, and over a period of 10, 15 years, as they sat under the teaching of the Word of God, they matured, and some of that licentiousness and wildness that was characteristic of their youth, which is often typical of babies, uh, disappeared with maturity. It wasn't an imposition from the top down. And that's what we see in churches. And people come in and you have this structure of Sunday school teachers and this structure of, of deacons, and they, they organize everything down into these cell groups. I mentioned the Sunday school movement was kind of a cell group, 
But now we have home churches. They have many church things they call mini churches, home churches, home Bible studies that meet during the week, and the whole church only comes together uh, for the teaching of the word on on Sunday. And the idea is that everybody's got to be part of a small little cell group in order to um, really feel like they're part of the whole. And that's not necessary. That's a if you trace the history of that, that's a a human viewpoint methodology that you don't find in the scriptures. Our passage today is begins in Acts 4, 32 to 37. I've touched on this a few times. Uh, there's, one, there's one verse in here that uh, as I touched on it, and I hadn't uh, really dug into it a whole lot, I think presents a tension for, for a lot of people. And we'll look at it tonight, but I want to look at the exegesis of this, of this passage, and we're going to see the dynamic that occurred in the early church. In Acts 4, 32 to 37, we have a progress report by Luke. Luke does this periodically as we move through this, this book, and he tells us what is going on. And previously we've seen progress reports where he's talked about 3,000 being saved in Acts 2.41, then in uh, Acts 4.4, 4, he talked about 5,000 men were added to the church. And then here we come in at the end of Acts 4 to another uh, progress report. All of the events in this period probably cover the first six months, uh, certainly not more than a year. We can't be precise, but, but probably not more than six, the first six months after the, after the resurrection. So he begins by giving us this progress report in Acts 4.32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. One heart and one soul is simply an idiom, a picturesque idiom for emphasizing the unity that existed among all of these believers. Now he doesn't give a number here. He just talks about the multitude. Now let's think a little bit about how large the body of Christ has become in this first period of six months to a year. We can only get some parameters. So let's sort of speculate a little bit and try to be conservative and then a little more generous with our speculation. At the minimum, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that after the resurrection, Jesus not only appeared to the 11, but he also appeared to 500 at one time. So we know that there were, by the time of the day of Pentecost, at least 500 believers. At least 500 believers. There are probably, I think on the, uh, if we're generous, there's a lot more, but we know for a minimal, there's at least 500. In Acts 2.41, we're told that 3,000 are saved. So by the end of the first day of Pentecost, you've got 3,500 church-age believers, minimum. Then in Acts 4.4, which is arguably within the first couple of months, maybe a lot closer to the day of Pentecost, but at least within the first couple of months, you have 5,000 men saved. Now, if every one of those men, and I know that not all of them are, but there are going to be some variations here, if every one of those men is married and has two children, and the average family size of someone at that time in the in the church, I mean in, in Israel, was probably had many, many more children than just two. 
So if you've got, for every male that's saved, you've got a wife and two children, then you've got about uh, 20, now you've got about 23,500. You've got about 23,000 people that got saved. Four for 5,000 men times four is 20,000. So you'd have about 23,500. Now, some of those men that are, are there are, I mean, some of those believers that are there were, were in for the day of Pentecost. They're from the diaspora, so they've come from outside of Israel. And so let's, let's just subtract about 5,000 or so uh, who went home. So we're left with a minimum of somewhere between, you know, eighteen to 20,000 uh, church-age believers within the first six months. That's a pretty sizable number for that short of a period of time. But if we're a little more generous, and I think a little more realistic, because during the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus during the the three years of Jesus' ministry, there were much more than 500 who became believers and trusted in him as Messiah. There there could have been as many as as, uh, 10, 15, 20,000. Uh, we don't know, but let's say that that um, Israel at the time had a population of, of Jews at the time of Christ of uh, maybe a million and a half to two million. If 3% of the population had become believers, then you've got maybe 60,000 or more that had become believers during the years of Jesus' ministry. And there are passages that indicate that there were multitudes of people that did uh, believe in him as the Messiah. So if you add that number to the number saved in Acts 2 and Acts 4, then we might have as many as 75,000 believers in Israel within the first six months or a year. Now, now that's still a small part of the population. That's about little three or four percent of the population of, of Israel at that of Judea and Galilee in that area at the time. And so the range would then be somewhere between twenty thousand to seventy-five thousand uh, believers. If we just take the lowest possible conservative estimate at twenty thousand, Josephus tells us that there were no more than 6,000 males who were officially Pharisees. Think about Let that number settle in a minute. 20,000 believers now, six, ten months in, and 6,000 official Pharisees. And they didn't have quite as many Sadducees as Pharisees, so there were about 4,000 Sadducees. Simon Sebag Montefiore in his in his uh, new biography, he calls it Jerusalem a biography because he focuses on key people in different eras, uh, refers to the Sadducees as a wealthy aristocratic class and constantly refers to them as grandees. Uh, they were abusing their wealth and their power. They didn't really believe in anything historical in terms of uh, Judaism. They rejected the concept of uh, supernatural beings or angels. They rejected the concept of, uh, of resurrection. So they were just like a lot of liberal liberal Christians and Jews today. They, they have a sort of a formal uh, nod to the Bible, but other than that, they really don't believe it has, has any reality. So let's say you've got, in just a period of 6 to 12 months, 20,000 40,000, 50,000 Jews, just if you've got 20,000 Christians and you've got 10,000 Sadducees and Pharisees, can anybody say the word jealousy? 
envy. You know, they're, they're losing out on the competition. They're really upset. That's a small number, and the, this new movement of the followers of Christ is just, in their term, they're, they're, it's exploding, and many of their own members are dropping out and becoming identified uh, with Christ. So we have a lot of growth that's taking place. Now, this growth, now just just think with me on this, because this is going to factor in, not so much in what I've covered so far in the Jude study, but it will. They're not using a set methodology to evangelize this large number of people. It's just people are excited about the fact that, that they're forgiven, that the Messiah has come that they have salvation, and they're telling other people. They're not, they're, they don't have a, a, a set blueprint like uh, evangelism explosion. And by using these as illustrations, I'm not demeaning them. They've been useful by a lot of people in leading other people to the Lord and explaining the gospel. But people have this idea that you, if you just get the right pattern, if you just get the right presentation like salesmanship, if you just have the right hook, and you say the right words, then you're going to have success and you're going to build a huge church because you've got the formula for presenting the gospel down. It's all become advertising and salesmanship rather than the Holy Spirit. Uh, years ago when I was ordained, the pastor who ordained me made the comment that, that anybody in the power of the flesh can build a huge organization, Christian non-Christian, business, or whatever, if they have talent and they work hard, but it's all done in the flesh, it's not done in the spirit. The only thing that matters for eternity is that which is done in the power of the spirit and on the basis of the spiritual gifts that God has given us. It's not about doing finding that one methodology or what we find today is that in the latest um, uh, permutation of apostasy, in American evangelicalism, and I use the term very loosely in re- reference to the emergent church, um, the emergent church is the new form of, the, of Christianity that must emerge to communicate to the postmodern mindset of the teens and 20 and 30-somethings today. And so you have to compromise a lot of truth in order to make uh, Christianity palatable. What happens when you compromise that truth is it's no longer Christianity. You've diluted it. You've taken out critical doctrine, so you're left with something that really isn't biblical Christianity at all. And the focus, uh, one of the battles that we fought with the modernist church was over methodology. A right thing done a wrong way is, is wrong. And in evangelism, there are a lot of these evangelism-type methodologies that are just, just sort of programs that if you just get into it and follow the, the, the formula, then you're going to build a great big church. I, in a book I read recently uh, about evangelical, the new evangelicalism is that in the emergent church, they don't even want to talk about methodology. It's no longer even relevant to talk about methodology. We used to debate it. Now it's not even debated. They don't want to even talk about it. It doesn't matter anymore. And and so what that methodology, when you talk when I talk about it that way and say say methodology, sometimes that's an abstract concept for people, but it's basically how you do what you do. So if you're not going to talk about there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, 
then you, you, any, anything goes and you're throwing more and more absolutes out the window. So this is really important to understand how the church grew. It didn't grow by following a business model. A lot of what goes on in modern evangelicalism, a lot of organizations and a lot of churches is really patterned after what happened in the industrial uh, revolution and the growth of the modern corporation. You had In the modern corporation, you had a board of directors. Modern churches, you have a board of deacons. Now, in the early church, I think what you had was a pastor, and the pastor appointed deacons and individual mature men in the congregation and gave them responsibilities. But they didn't meet once, and I'm not saying this is wrong to do this, but they didn't meet like once a month like we do and keep minutes and, uh, and, and follow the business of the church. They were just, the pastor was the leader of the congregation, and the deacons had responsibilities. One deacon was responsible for taking care of the grounds. You know, a lot of the responsibilities we do, but it didn't function like a corporate board. We've sort of merged those ideas uh, today. Not that that's always bad, and I'm not trying to change anything. I'm just, you know, we need to think that the early church in the first century in, in Judea didn't function like a 20th century corporate board type church today. It was different. Um, they grew because they they trusted what the Scripture said. And then they went out and did what the Scripture says and lived as if the Scriptures uh, were true. And so one aspect of this was they became grace-oriented very quickly. And that's what gets brought out in this passage. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There's a unity. Now, the th- a thread that runs through these these uh, six verses from 32 to 37 is the thread of the authority of the apostles. I want you to notice that uh, in verse 33, it begins, and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the verse 32 talks about the multitude. 33 talks about the power of the apostles. And then verse 34 goes on, and 35 talks about that they sold land, and what did they do with the proceeds? They brought it and laid it at the feet of the apostles. It's recognizing they're the leaders in the church, and they're the ones who are going to oversee how the body takes care of itself. And then we have the example in verses 36 and 37 of Barnabas, who has some land, sells it, and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. So there's a thread that runs through here of the authority of the leadership of the church and their oversight of the business of the church. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see a challenge to that that comes up because of the deceptive uh, characteristics of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, but we won't get into that as much uh, uh, until next next time after I return after I return from Kiev. So the church has... Is, is growing rapidly. It's not doing it on the basis of a program or a methodology. It's doing it on the basis of the power of the Spirit and the apostles who are consistent in proclaiming the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that's the emphasis because that is what was the great credential 
that Jesus was who he claimed to be was the reality of the resurrection. So they are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then it says, and great grace, tremendous grace was upon them all. That's all of those within the church. They're becoming grace-oriented. So there's, on one hand, there's an emphasis on the authority of the, of the apostles. On the other hand, there's an emphasis on the growth of the church, not just numerically, but spiritually as they become grace-oriented, and then what that looks like. Now, before we get any further, I want to give you a little background information and in, in a few points. First point that I want to make is that this century, this first century, what we call the first century of since Christ, first century A.D., in Israel was probably a lot worse than what most of us have thought about. We know things get really bad in from the mid-40s to, up to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem falls. In 66 to 72, there's a rebellion. But that rebellion is preceded by... Uh, a tremendous amount of economic and social collapse in Israel. And it has already started, according to one scholar, one New Testament scholar, uh, Joachim Jeremias, who's German. Uh, he's a highly respected student of that uh, New Testament era. I believe he is uh, going to be with the Lord now. He states in his studies that Judea was already beginning to face economic and political unrest in before Christ is ever crucified. And there's evidence of others who'd come along to claim to be Christ. There were other insurrections that occurred in the 20s uh, in, in Israel. I've been reading through, and I'm not sure how much I would recommend this book yet. The writer doesn't believe scriptures have any more authority than Aesop's fables, uh, so he has a lot of uh, er- errors in that regard, but he's a great storyteller, and he's a great writer, and he writes on the history of Jerusalem, and the book is called Jerusalem, the, a Biography by Simon Sebag Montefiore. He's the great, great, great nephew of Sir Moses Montefiore, the first Jew to be knighted in the British Empire, who was one of the great uh, philanthropists who donated huge amounts of money to help resettled Jews who were escaping persecution in, in uh, Eastern Europe uh, to uh, I- Israel back in the uh, early, 18, uh, early 1800s, in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, he's written a number of, um, of uh, acclaimed books. He's re- been nominated for a number of prestigious literary awards. Uh, but he's, very, he's extremely picturesque in his in language, uh, I've caught him in a number of factual errors, though, and some of which are not related to biblical interpretation. So uh, uh, with that in mind, I'm still kind of guarded in terms of how I'm recommending this, but um, uh, I'm reading all of his sources and checking things out. And one of the things that, that I've been learning more and more about over the last few years since my first trip to Israel is that in Israel in that first century, it was becoming more and more perverted and decadent in Judea. Uh, at, at the time of Christ. It is, it is really a cesspool of moral perversion. We don't get that picture or that emphasis because that's not what the writers of Scripture are talking about. But uh, a number of things that I have read, here a little, there a little, reinforce this, this depiction that, that um, there was just a tremendous amount of uh, moral perversion going on in Israel 
uh, in Judea at this time, and it was fragmenting the nation, and it was getting worse, so that by the time you get into the 60s, you've got Jewish insurrectionists fighting Jewish insurrectionists, and they're all claiming to be messiahs, and you've got Jews fighting Jews, and they can barely unite together to fight the Romans. And the whole culture, the whole society just absolutely fragments, polarizes and fragments uh, during this time. So this is beginning as early as the 20s, uh, the, roughly the time of Jesus, the time Jesus began his ministry or a little, a little earlier. We know that by the mid to late 40s, Acts 11 describes a worldwide famine that comes into the Roman Empire. Things get much, much worse. And, um, so Judea is already seeing the foreshadowings of this economic disaster that is on the, on the horizon. A second thing we have to remember that would be part of the um, intellectual, spiritual uh, component for each believer was their understanding of the prediction that Jesus had made about the, de- the soon-coming destruction of, of Jerusalem in Luke 21. Much of Luke 21, other than these verses, relates to the sign of Jesus coming. It's parallel to Matthew 24, the Sermon on the Mount, and this, but this section talks about what will happen soon. And Jesus warns them that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. This is a prediction of AD 70, not the tribulation. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. Now, that verse was remembered by the Christians, who, the Christian community that still lived in Jerusalem in uh, uh, 69, AD 69 and early 70 prior to uh, the final assault on Jerusalem. And when uh, initially Vespasian had brought his troops to, to Jerusalem to put down the, to Israel to put down the insurrection, when Nero died, uh, he, he left and he went back to Rome uh, to become Caesar. And so the troops pulled back to Caesarea for uh, uh, several months. And it's during that hiatus of the siege that the Christians just evacuated like rats leaving a sinking ship. And, um, and that was a foundation of a lot of subsequent problems between Jews and Christians because a lot of Jews blamed Christians for leaving them in the lurch. But the Christians realized, hey, this is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 21, and we're leaving. And they fled to the mountains uh, where they survived. And uh, the, the, the story is that no Christians lost their lives in the siege of Jerusalem. Luke 21, 22, Jesus went on to say, For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, there are post-millennialists who've come along and taken this term days of vengeance and said, see, this is really when all prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, No, just the prophecies related to the uh, fifth cycle of discipline on Israel because of their uh, disobedience to God, the rejection of Jesus as a Messiah. Luke 21, 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Now, that's why we know this isn't talking about the the future tribulation, because at the end of the tribulation, are the Jewish people led captive into all the nations? No. 
No, Jesus returns and the, establishes the kingdom. So this is talking about what happened in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem falls and all of the Jews are led away, and it's the beginning of the times uh, of the Gentiles. They're, they're trampled. Uh, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. doesn't say that's when it begins. Uh, that's a correction. Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This didn't start the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles started in 586 B.C., when uh, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. 586 B.C., until uh, Jesus returns, Jerusalem is, and the politics of Jerusalem will be dominated and determined by more powerful Gentile nations. That's the times of the Gentiles. It's not a synonym for the church age. It is a, it is a recognition that because of Israel's apostasy in the Old Testament, that they will not return to ascendancy until they return to the Lord, Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 1 and 2. And so there's this this prediction. So they know that it's not going to be long before everything that they're looking at, everything that they love about Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So when it comes to property ownership in Jerusalem, in terms of a long-term investment, not such a good thing. How long? They don't know. But they know that it's going to be soon and in their generation. Third thing that we note from this period is that their em- the employment opportunities were declining as hostility developed towards Christians. The, uh, those who were not Christians were putting economic and social pressure on the Christians so that uh, they were the objects of uh, prejudice and discrimination. They would not get hired or they would lose jobs, and then it would make it difficult for many within the church to make a living and provide for their families. What we see here in these next few verses is a response to this situation that I believe is unique in history in terms of its degree. There is a huge uh, outpouring of generosity by those who have property, those who own property, own houses, and in terms of those who have assets, solid, hard assets, to convert those assets uh, into cash as needed to support those who could not support their families anymore, those who were, who were indigent. And this, uh, they, they come to understand the grace of God, and this is really the motivation for their giving and the degree of their generosity. They understand what the Old Testament has taught about taking care of the poor. Now, what we read in this verse is uh, in verse 34... Uh, nor, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as they had need, verse 35. Well, let's just talk about verse 34 for a minute. Let's talk about that first phrase, nor was there any poor among them. I think the New King James translates it, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Literally, that phrase, who lacked, is one word in the Greek. It's the poor. So the statement begins with a conjunction that should be translated, neither was there anyone among them who poor. Neither was there any poor among them. Now, that would raise a question. How come there weren't any poor among them? 
Well, there's two passages from the Old Testament that I think would come to people's minds at this point. One was Deuteronomy 15.4, which actually predicts what will take place during the, only during the Millennial Kingdom. That uh, except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. The picture was that if Israel was obedient to the Lord, there wouldn't be any poor. However, that's, that's the ideal. That's the condition. That's the uh, circumstance that if they're obedient, they never really were. There were times when they approached it to, to that degree, but only during the time of David and Solomon for a very brief time. And that's why Jesus gives the description, not a prescription, in verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. He's not saying make sure the poor never cease from the land. He says the poor will never cease from the land. Why? Because they're never going to achieve a level of obedience to be fully blessed by God so that poverty is wiped out. Poverty is not going to be wiped out by the federal government declaring a war on poverty. In fact, there are more people in poverty today than when the war of poverty began. There's been more wasted federal dollars because the problem isn't uh, a lack of money from the federal government. The problem is with individuals and their responsible choices. So we go back to the Old Testament, gives us a little bit of a framework. What we're seeing here is that uh, along with the message of the kingdom, we see almost an idealized snapshot of the early church where they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so no one, there's no poverty there. But it's just a snapshot. It's just for an instant. Uh, they re- those who have property recognize, and those who have money, and means recognize the principles from the Old Testament principles we've looked at in uh, earlier weeks. Proverbs 14.21, he who despises his neighbor sins. Now, we know that the reason he despises his neighbor for his, is economic because of the next, ver- next line. He who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. So there's wisdom there to have mercy and be gracious, kind to those who are poor no matter how they got there. Uh, Proverbs 14.31 says that he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. The problem in the Old Testament wasn't that uh, the government ever was accused of not taking care of the poor. That wasn't the problem. There's a difference between saying, you know, you really haven't taken care of, of your dog, if I tell you that. You haven't really taken care of your dog. Now your dog may be eating well and healthy, but you really haven't done a good job of giving him a great life. That's very different from saying you've oppressed your dog, you've abused your dog, you've beaten your dog, you've been mean to your dog. See, there's a vast difference between those two things. And the problem that you see from liberals today is that they say, oh, we have to apply the Bible. Of course, they pick and cherry pick what verses they'll use. We have to apply the Bible and, and, and take care of the poor. Because look at all these passages that God accuses Israel because they didn't take care of the poor. He didn't accuse them of not taking care of the poor. All the accusations are they abused the poor. They mistreated the poor. They took advantage of the poor. They were abusive. There's a vast difference between those two concepts. And in Proverbs 14.31, we see the negative. The one who oppresses the poor, uh, Proverbs 17.5, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. Uh, Proverbs 19:17. he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. That is, when you're giving to someone in need, that's as if you're giving to the Lord. 
and uh, the Lord will take care of you in proper recompense. So we get to Acts 4.34, and the background and the mind of these, these believers is what the Old Testament taught about taking care of each other and taking care of the poor. So we have this first line, nor there was any poor among them, and the implication is we should ask the question, well, why weren't there any poor among them? And then the, the last clause is expressed starting with a uh, word in the Greek, gar, which indicates an explanation, so he's answering a question that's expected. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the feet of the, the apostles. That's the next verse. Now, I would suggest, I'm not going to have a show of hands, but I'm going to suggest that that you've done the same thing that I've done when you've read this in the King James or New King James Version or some of the other trans, modern translations, and that is that, that the way this is translated is it looks, in the English, it implies that those who had land and houses sold their land and houses and gave the money to the church. And I'm not the only one. Not only do, do liberals who approach the Scripture see that, but one uh, noted conservative uh, econo- economist by the name of Gary North, a uh, few of you know who Gary North is, writ- has written an economic commentary on numerous books in the Bible, and Gary North is a... Uh, is extremely conservative in his economics. He's also known as being, he's a, a dominionist. He's an outspoken dominionist. Uh, he is an outspoken post-millennialist. He's an outspoken critic of dispensationalists. He one time responded to a letter I wrote that I was, that my arguments were, were so vacuous that I was standing naked in the public square. I accused him of having a pen that dripped venom. But that's that's Gary North. Anyway, he does have some some insightful things to say on economics. I don't know what he charges for his economic newsletter today, but he used to charge like ninety dollars a year for his uh, economic advice, and you'd get his little newsletter in the mail. Um, but he has an economic commentary on the Book of Acts, and he thinks that because he doesn't know Greek, if you knew the original languages, maybe you wouldn't be postmillennial or a dominionist, but that probably wouldn't make any difference to uh, Scary Gary, as I think Tommy calls him. Um, he tried to scare everybody to death in uh, what was it, Y2K. He sold everything he owned in Texas, moved up to the Ozarks, built a compound, escaped everything because Y2K would come and all the power would be gone. Everything would stop. Western civilization would collapse. Scared everybody to death. Scary Gary was wrong. So anyhow, uh, in, even in his conservative commentary, he takes the text as implying that they sold everything that they had and, and the wealthy sold everything. Now, when I first started getting into this passage a couple of months ago, there was something there that was nagging at me. There was something there that just bothered me, that if you have your, your, your property class in the church sells everything, Okay, everybody in the church that owns a house and has money converts all of their assets, liquidates all their assets, converts everything into money, and then gives 100% to the church, what do they have? Nothing. Now they're the poor. They don't have any clothes. They don't have a house. They don't have, they're homeless. They don't have a place to sleep at night. Now they become dependent. Not only have they lost all of their means of support, 
but they put themselves in a place of dependency on the church. Now, that just kind of bothered me a little bit, but I hadn't focused on it yet, and so I just kind of nagging away in the back of my mind that that's a problem. Another problem with that is that, that they would take whatever income-producing properties that they had, and rather than using the, keeping the money invested in those income-producing properties and giving a percentage of the, of the profit to the church every year, if they sold the income-producing property and gave everything to the church, they cut off the income from that property for the church for the coming years. That didn't sound too biblical or wise either, so I'm just scratching my head on this, reading through English translations, and, and I looked at the Greek a couple of times and scratched my head over it and really got into it in the last couple of days and realized it's been badly handled. I'm not setting myself up as some sort of Greek expert because there are a lot who know Greek better than I, but we have it in, in Greek, the way the language is structured, those of you who know Spanish or Latin or you German or studied uh, other languages similar to, to Greek understand that the way you tell the subject of a sentence in English is because it comes in front of the verb. John hit the ball. We don't say hit John the ball or hit the ball John. But in Greek, you can do that and mix up your parts of speech because the subject always has a nominative ending, and no matter where you put it in the sentence, it has the same ending so you know what the subject is. The verb is the verb. No matter where you put it, it's always the action. If it's an active verb, it's the action performed by the nominative case noun. The accusative case, the direct object, can be at the end, at the beginning, wherever, but you know it's always the object of the verb because it's what's in the accusative case. So sometimes in Scripture, the writers will take a complex sentence and they'll throw something way up to the front for emphasis. And when we translate it in English, there's this tendency, since that's at the front of the sentence, to keep it at the front. But sometimes that just really doesn't make sense in English at all. So we have to throw it. Uh, in English, we really need to take that word that's in the Greek at the front. Sometimes it needs to go at the end, which is what I'm doing here. See, the, the, it's translated, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. So that has it right in the sense of all who were possessors of lands or houses. Uh, that's your, that's your subject, subject clause. But the 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 um, that that were sold is is kind of at the end, but when it says brought the th- proceeds of the things that were sold, what you have in the Greek is a partis is is a participle. It doesn't look anything like that were sold. It's not a uh, it's not a relative clause like that. That's how they took it. But a relative participle would probably almost ninety nine percent of the time have an article with it. Doesn't have an article with it. So the subject is really as many as, it's a, it's a pronoun that means as many as are all that we, all who with reference to something, uh, that is those who with reference to owning something. So we can translate it as many as own properties or houses. So that's what we're talking about is property owners. And, it, and the as many as indicates all the property owners. Not all the property, but all the property owners. See, sometimes people look at this and they think all the property owners sold all the property. But it just says, as many as own property. And then the verb is that they brought something. 
So it's that, that verb is brought. It's an imperfect tense verb, and in the Greek, the imperfect tense has a continuous action, for example, in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. It's an imperfect tense of, a, of the verb was or is to be a me in the Greek, and that means continuous, continual existence. doesn't ever stop, just ongoing, continuous existence. But the an imperfect tense would also be used if you said, t- talked about somebody, they always went to church. Well, that didn't mean that they were always at church and always going to church continuously and never stopped going to church, but that if they only went to church every Sunday, they continuously went to church. It's iterative. iterative. It's, it's individual past actions, but they're separated by time. They're numerous actions, but they're ongoing. So the, the, this is described by grammarians as an iterative concept, repeated action by the same person over a period of time. So it's, again, something that happens again and again and again rather than continuously nonstop. So we're talking about many different situations where they, where they did this, where they sold property and brought the proceeds uh, to the apostles. The object clause is the price of what was sold. They brought the the price. It's the word time. And that's interesting. That normally means honor, but it was also used for the payment of a salary, the payment of money, so that in the in, in the uh, pastorals it talks about a pastor is worthy of double honor. And that's how it's translated in in the in the um uh in English because the translators were didn't feel like it was right to say pastors worthy of a double salary. But that's what it says in the Greek. Time means money or payment price. So uh, worthy is the uh, uh, hire of a, of, a, of a servant. So we go on. The, the participle is when it was sold. See, the, the Greek doesn't add the qualification. They're just an adverbial participle. And I got out my chart, my grammar chart, and I worked through every possibility that it can be. Is it time? Is it after? When? Is it because? Is it by means of? Is it in this manner? Just work through every a- action. And there's two or three that might work. A result might work. But the one that works the best is that they brought the proceeds when they sold the property. It doesn't mean that anywhere is there an implication in the Greek that they sold all that they had. And the picture that's presented here is that those who had means in the congregation were aware that they've got a huge administrative organizational problem here, and they've got a lot of -of out-of-towners who came to town for Passover, I mean, excuse Passover and Pentecost, and now they become Christians and they've stayed. But they don't have any jobs. They don't have any means of support. And so we have to take care of them. And when they learned of a need, if they had the financial resources or if they owned property or a house, they sold their assets, converted it to cash, and they didn't give it directly to the person. They gave it to the leadership of the church because they were the ones who uh, would have their pulse on who was qualified and who needed what when. And so this is the picture in Acts uh, 4.35. They laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. That they in the distributed are the apostles. They're in charge of distributing. They were receiving the money at this point, uh, 
and they were overseeing the distribution. Now, we're going to get into the administrative problems this caused in, in Acts 6 because it wasn't long before the apostles realized that, that they, th- this wasn't their job description. It was way above their, uh, their pay grade, and they needed to have somebody else take care of the distribution of the funds, and that's when they first get a group that is sort of a prototype of what eventually were called deacons. So we, we have this great picture of what's happening of this grace-oriented church. And then we're introduced in verse 36 and 37 to this, this great character, this great individual we don't know a whole lot about named Joseph. And he's nicknamed Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement or the son of exhortation. We're told he's a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Now, Levites were prohibited from owning land in the Old Testament, but Barnabas owned land. He was wealthy. He sells land, so obviously he owned it. And we know from Josephus and other sources that after the return of the Jews from captivity, the Babylonian captivity during the Second Temple period, that the Levites owned land. In fact, many of the Sadducees were Levites, and they owned a lot. They were extremely wealthy. They, it wasn't illegal for them to participate in insider deals at the time, and they had their fingers in a lot of insider deals. And so they were uh, not only uh, wealthy, but they were also uh, somewhat corrupt. Uh, now, Barnabas was also a Levite. He owned land, and he recognizes that that everything that we have is from the Lord, and if there are believers in true need, then we need to, if, if I have it, then I need to share. And that was their mentality. It was truly grace, a, a grace orientation. It wasn't a requirement. Nobody is going along, as we'll see in the next chapter, and saying, you need to do this, but they did it out of their own internal motivation from their own their own spiritual growth. Now, Bar- Barnabas is called uh, the Bar- the meaning of Barnabas is is son of encouragement or son of uh, a son of exhortation. And I've told you before and taught you that in Hebrew, the phrase "son of" often expressed an attribute about somebody. It was like an adjectival description. So that if somebody was a murderer, they would be, the, the Hebrew idiom was they would be called the son of a murderer. They were a murderer. They are, dis, they are exhibiting that uh, characteristic of being a murderer. If they were a fool, they'd be called the son of a fool. If they were destructive, they would, like Belial, they would be called uh, an SOB, a son of Belial. So there, this was the terminology. So if you want somebody's God, they're called the son of God. We have a similar idiom in English. We, if somebody epitomizes something, then we call them Mr. Something. For example, there was a baseball film that came out in the early 90s with Tom Selleck as the main character of an aging baseball player who just loved and identified with the game, and the name of the film was Mr. Baseball. And so if you call somebody Mr. Baseball, you think, man, this guy lives for baseball. Uh, if somebody is grumpy, we call them Mr. Grumpy is here today. And if, um, uh, if somebody's enthusiastic, we might call them, well, Mr. Enthusiasm. And if somebody's uh, no longer being helpful or cooperative, then we say, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Just before I got in the pulpit today, I was handed a headline from the, what is this, the uh, Wall Street Journal today with a picture of Mitt Romney, Mr. Good Enough. See, that's our idiom. 
Okay, same kind of thing as son of encouragement, son of God, so maybe that'll help people understand that a little bit. Well, Barnabas is mentioned 24 times by Luke, mostly within a narrow range of chapters because he goes on the first missionary journey with the apostle Paul. He's mentioned five times by Paul, but he's a really a behind-the-scenes player. He's the guy who uh, is so trusted by the apostles in Jerusalem that when something starts happening up in Antioch, which is where the first uh, believers were called Christians, they send Barnabas to investigate it. Now, Barnabas had met Paul after he was saved, and when Barnabas got to Antioch and he saw what was going on, he said, you know, the person that really needs to be here is Paul. And he goes, and Paul's in obscurity back home in Tarsus, and he plucks out Paul from obscurity and says, you know, you're the man. He goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and his cousin, Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. John Mark's young and wet behind the ears, and he's, he's not ready for the discipline and the rigor that, and the uh, stoicism of the Apostle Paul or uh, the Spartac existence of a, being a, a companion of the Apostle Paul. So he's whining through most of the trip, and by the end of the first missionary journey, Paul's just had enough, and he does not want John Mark to accompany them anymore. And uh, for that reason, there's kind of a difference of opinion, friendly di- disagreement between him and Barnabas, and Barnabas goes off with John Mark, and Paul then goes on his second third missionary journeys with them. Later on, he tells Mark, bring the scrolls. So they're, they're reconciled. Mark matured. But Barnabas is that guy who worked behind the scenes. He's the, he's, people often look at somebody like Billy Graham and say, wow, look at that guy. I want to be like Billy Graham. Well, why don't, want you be, why don't you want to be like the guy who led Billy Graham to the Lord? Or you look at Dwight Moody and say, I want to be like Dwight Moody. Well, why don't you want to be like the guy who led Dwight Moody to the Lord? To serve the Lord in obscurity and have great impact. Just think, the guy who led Billy Graham to the Lord, just look at the impact he had. See, the, the person who labors for the Lord in obscurity is just as important in the body of Christ as a person that seems to be out there in front of everybody. Barnabas was that kind of person. He's always going to go to the guy who's hurting, the guy who seems to have not quite gotten it to the, uh, up to the front yet, and he's there pushing them, prodding them, encouraging them, uh, working behind the scenes. We'll see a lot of Barnabas in the coming chapters. So this brings us to a conclusion with this little um, update, progress report. We see a grace-oriented church. So far, there's been nothing negative happen, but the bass drums are beginning to roll in the background, and we're beginning to hear that the uh, greatest villain of all is, is waiting in the wings to show up on stage now in the early church in the next chapter, and we'll cover that when I return from Kiev, and that will be in about three weeks. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to together to study these things. Encourage us that everybody is important in the body of Christ. We need to pull together as a body of believers, being aware of the needs of others in the congregation, helping in many ways, and uh, providing help where we can uh, in a lot of different ways, not just financially. But there are many ways in which we can minister to one another as we serve you just out of the grace orientation of our soul and the goodness of our soul and our own spiritual growth. And, Father, we pray that you would encourage us with um, um, what we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just one point.
that I didn't bring out. I was thinking about it earlier in prayer meeting. Our congregation is aging. Don't look around and point fingers. And there are a lot of people who have legitimate needs. We have a number of widows in the congregation. We have people who just can't quite reach the highest shelf anymore. They can't get out and uh, do certain things around the house that they could do at one time. Uh, and that's not going to, that situation is not going to improve a lot over the coming uh, year or decade. And, and that's the kind of thing that was going on in the early church is that they were aware of, they knew each other, and when there were needs, they helped. And that's what pulls that body of believers together. And I think that's an important lesson to learn from, from this kind of uh, example is that a body of believers is really a team and that needs to get to know each other and be able to serve the Lord in serving one another. And so uh, we'll see some great examples of that in these coming lessons. All right, well, pray for me in, in uh, Kiev, and I look forward to coming back healthy.